Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places, the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. I will baptize you, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now for not not only understanding, but also heart transformation. Work within us, and may this your living word 
Bring John's message to our hearts this day that we might turn to you and trust in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in Luke's epistle, we were looking at a 12-year-old Jesus, which means John would have been about 13. And now we jump over 17 years, and here comes a 30-year-old John out of the wilderness, a very sudden thought. Uh, And to anyone familiar with the Old Testament, it should, should cause you just the way it's presented in the Gospels to think of Elijah. Coming out of the wilderness, you know, Elijah in, in Kings is, is just there, talking. And here's John, he, he's just there, preaching at the age of 30. We don't know what happened in between 13 and 30 for John. Presumably his parents died, they were both old when he was born. Um, and presumably, he probably was in the priestly training. So the priests from the age of 20 to 30 were in what was somewhat similar to a seminary slash internship program. You would be serving with priests in different parts of Israel or in different synagogues throughout the world. But then if you were of this line of Aaron, at the age of 30, you would start serving at the temple in rotation And that's what we would expect from one whose father was Zacharias of one priestly branch and whose mother was from the line directly of Aaron. We would expect him to show up at the age of 30 at the temple as the new high priest. We, in fact, read here of two men, Annas and Caiaphas, neither of which were from the direct lineage of Aaron. So maybe we would expect John to replace them and there to be a high priest again, according to the law of God. But God is, isn't for the first time going to take one and use him differently than we expect. In a very similar way, Ezekiel, also a priest, at the age of 30, entered into his ministry as a prophet. And here, John, at the age of 30, begins his ministry, but it's a different anointed position than we expect. He comes as prophet. And of course, we knew this if we paid attention in chapter 1, that he is to come as the herald, not just any prophet, but the one that the prophets spoke of as the, the second Elijah, the one who would be the herald to prepare the way for the king of kings. Luke 1 emphasized that through Malachi's prophecy. Now Luke 3, we have his calling defined for us using Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 40, as we read here, specifically verses 3 through 5. And in this choice of words from Isaiah 40, we have his ministry laid before us. John's ministry is to be one... um, the, the way that kept popping into my head this week to think of it is that John's ministry is as a public works department. He's supposed to fix the roads. He's supposed to find where there are uh, sinkholes and do something about it. 
He is to appear where there are bumps and smooth them out. He's like a public works department, but of course, not literally walking around Jerusalem fixing the cobblestone streets or whatever they had at that time. But his streets are the hearts of the citizens of Israel. Because he is a herald to the king, he is to prepare the subjects for the king. And so he looks at their hearts and is to do a work there. Chapter 1 anticipated this by quoting from Malachi that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their sons and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that's what we have here. We have his whole ministry summed up in 20 verses. And I think three things especially stand out about his ministry in these 20 verses. I want to cover two of them this week and leave the greatest of them, the the goal of all of it for next week. But two of these things, both in terms of that idea of public works department, John prepares and John surveys. So first I want to think about John preparing. I know that's out of order. If I was really talking about a public works department, first they would survey, then then they would do the fix. We're going to do it the opposite order this morning here. John first prepares the way, and he prepares the way for the king through humble repentance, verses 7 through 9. Humble repentance as opposed to hereditary pride. And this is what makes his job so hard, is the pride of the people about their heredity. And it can make, in a different way, an equally hard task for us today. John prepares the way through humble repentance. He doesn't give the people the preaching they want. Remember all the times that the prophets talk about the the people wanting their ears to be tickled. What, what, What a great imagery that is, to have your ears tickled, meaning you want to be flattered. Don't we all? What, what many of us want, this isn't an attack on any of you. I don't mean that. But isn't what so much of our struggle is when we sit in worship to hear the sermon is that in the end of the day, I want and you want to be flattered. At least that's the temptation, isn't it? We want to be told we're doing okay or, or we want to be told that if we're not doing good enough, the fix is at least something very easy to obtain. We don't want to be told we have to go out and do some labor of Hercules, but something not too different from that might sound good. Tell me this thing I can do, and I will be right with God. We want to be told that we've kept all the commandments. And just have to add one more thing. That would be nice. But that's not the kind of preaching the prophets gave. It's not the type of preaching that John gives. And it's not the type of preaching that I need or you need. We need a different type of preaching. That's what John does here. Preparing the way for the king means breaking up 
broken streets. Breaking up fallow ground, as Jeremiah refers to it. Breaking up what is hard and already bad. We, we need, therefore, preaching that is more like a, a sledgehammer than, than like a, a paintbrush with some whitewash. And that's what John comes with. Notice the type of preaching he gives the people. Here he comes. They've been waiting for this prophet for 500 years. Here he comes. Vipers. What are you doing here? Who told you to flee the wrath? Can you imagine if on a Sunday morning someone walked in and in the middle of my sermon I said, who told you to come? That's what John does. He looks at his, to to use an inappropriate word, but one that's used so often today in churches, his audience. And he challenges why they're even there. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Vipers. And think about that idea of brood of vipers. He's talking to people who know their Old Testaments. He's talking to the men and women of Judah. Not to a bunch of pagans who have never heard the Old Testament. It's almost like he's saying they are the offspring of the one who appeared as a serpent in the garden. And if, if we wonder if that's what he means or not, it's irrelevant because Christ outright says it, doesn't he? Christ speaks to people who are part of the, the visible and open community of faith, the, what we would call the visible church, Israel, who are not repentant. And he says to them that they are of their father, the devil. John's at least hinting at that here. Brood of vipers, who warned you to come? What makes them vipers? Well, they're they're confident in who they are instead of turning in repentance to God. Their pride, which of course is one of the sins that Satan had, the sin that led him to his rebellion. And it's the temptation he brought to Eve that led her to want to be like God and led Adam to listen to Eve. Pride. And the pride of heredity is right here. Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Abraham seems like a great guy, but... How is that relevant? But, but even Abraham, if you reflect on him and reflect on what Joshua says about Abraham in Joshua 24, verse 2, he speaks of Abraham coming from a family that had worshipped many gods. And even the way that Joshua says it leaves at least a strong question mark. Is he saying that Abraham was one who had worshipped many gods? before he was called out by the one living and true God to leave all that and go to Canaan? I think Joshua at least indicates that. So where is pride there? Why was Abraham chosen? 
because he was the one true and faithful. No, no, Joshua's saying he was chosen purely out of the grace and love of God. And not because he deserved it. But, he, but even if Abraham's a great guy, how does being his descendant matter in that discussion? What did Isaac have to do with his birth? What, what do any of you have to do with being born to your parents? Have you ever considered the ridiculous nature of our, our pride in heredity? As if I chose to be born in this family. Of all the families in the world I could have been born into, I chose. Then maybe we could think pride made sense. But the foolishness of being born something you had nothing to do with into a, a, a family, a line, is quite ridiculous. John, John wants the people to leave that kind of thinking behind. What good will it do? And of course, the prophets, especially Malachi, and the apostles, especially Paul, go out of their way to make an emphatic point to the Jews that Esau was related to Abraham too. That Ishmael called Abraham father too. What good is all of that? If that's all you have to claim. In fact, it might be good to read Romans 9 through 11 this coming week. Because there Paul not only talks about what good it has done the Jews to be descendants of Abraham when God, seeing them without repentance, cuts them off from the tree. But Paul also takes us that next step and says, you've been grafted in. That doesn't mean you can't be taken back out. Romans 9 through 11 instills in us the same challenge and call to humble repentance that John was preaching to Judea in his day. Whether it was being born to Christian parents, some of you, or being a member of the visible church, if we have pride in these things without faith and repentance... Romans 9 through 11 drives the same point that John is making home. It does you no good. In fact, John will even go so far in verse 9 to suggest that it will do you more harm. Why would you boast in the privilege, the real privilege you've had if you were raised in a Christian home here today? You have had a real privilege of knowing the story of the Bible your whole life and of hearing the gospel presented to you. And John says to such people, 
Behold, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. No, instead, John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We struggle a little bit with the fruit part, and we'll come back to that in a moment, where we can misapply the fruit apart from faith. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the preparation is to prepare hearts with humble repentance. And John does, does that through his preaching, but he doesn't only do it through his preaching. He also does it through the sacrament. I think we might miss this a little bit in our day and age. Maybe we get caught up in debates over baptism and, and miss some of what's going on with John directly here. And... Maybe it's just that we, with familiarity, have contempt for even our own baptisms too much. But John coming, not just saying brood of vipers, but also calling them to baptism, it's, it's quite a shocking thing. See, John didn't invent baptism, We might think of it that way, that all of a sudden John created this new sacrament they'd never heard of before. Actually, the Jews were familiar with baptism. It was something they invented for the Gentiles. During the intertestamental period, there was a synagogue in every city. There was a great missions effort on the Jewish people's part. And and they welcomed, you might not think it the way they talk and think about the Gentiles, but they actually did welcome Gentiles to believe and to worship with them. But the, the way that you would become a member of the synagogue as a Gentile would be through circumcision, rightly and properly. That goes all the way back to Genesis 17. The stranger who would be a part of the covenant community needed to be circumcised. The the problem was a lot of Gentiles, if they had been circumcised, would have lost their jobs and their places in society. If you were a Roman centurion with money and power and uh, authority, but were circumcised, you would not hold that position long if it got out. And similar things could happen in various trades. Your guild might not permit circumcision. It was thought of as a disgraceful thing. And so I'm not saying this was right of them, but a a lot of Gentiles, understandably, I think, wanted to worship the one living and true God and believed the Old Testament, but were scared to take that last step. Well, the synagogues, this might be a little cynical, but I'm going to be cynical. The synagogues wanted the tithe money. And, and so they thought, well, maybe if we make a, a tiered membership platform where you can be a real member by circumcision, according to the ceremonial law, 
But for those who weren't up for it, they could worship at the synagogue. They had to sit at the outskirts in the back. But they could at least, you know, be there worshiping. Uh, They could um, participate in certain things, not the sacraments, not the Passover, not things like that. But they uh, they could at least be there for worship and they were allowed to tithe. But to be in that that membership platform, you had to be baptized, declaring that you were being set apart from the rest of the Gentiles. No Jew received baptism. That was what those pagans did when they wanted to be referred to as God-fearers, non-full, not full members of the synagogue, not full circumcised members of Israel, but God-fearers, the people on the outskirts, when they repented, they got to have baptism. And John not only comes in and calls everyone vipers, but he tells them, you need exactly what the pagans need. You need God to set you apart. You need God to cleanse you. From your evil ways. You need God. To work within you. And you need to acknowledge that publicly. Here's the sacrament. John. John is shocking in this way. And one of the really shocking things is that everyone came out to be baptized. One of the greatest insults in human history And everyone came out to listen to him. Astonishing. But anyone can speak words. And anyone anyone can even receive baptism. How does one prove or know truly the reality of repentance is in our hearts? That's where the second thing the text shows us of John comes in. John surveys the road, surveys the heart by assessing the fruit. He surveys by assessing the fruit. What do we do then, they say? And he says, here are very tangible things to look for. Now, now is he saying, by giving my cloak to someone in need. By giving food to someone who's hungry, I will be saved. Of course, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that's the fruit of repentance and salvation. But, but if we're not sure if our testimony is true, If there is sincere repentance in our hearts, John is saying, look at what has changed in your life. Dale Ralph Davis points out that the way to test if our repentance is sincere is not some superhuman feat, but a simple daily transformation. You've confessed your sin and repented. You've had that outward baptism 
Was it all real? Well, is your life different? Is your life different? Look at the things that John gets into regarding uh, this, this fruit of repentance. He speaks um, this message of repentance. And, and, well, first, let's start with what the difference it makes in the home. This isn't mentioned by him here, but it is indicated by Malachi, which is quoted in Luke chapter 1. The fruit of the repentance in the home should be relationships healed and strengthened. To turn the hearts of the fathers towards their sons. What does that mean? It means that the fathers long for and care about the relationship. Want the best for their children. And what of the, the um, disobedient to the wisdom of the just? It, it, it's pretty clear, isn't it, there from Malachi that it's the other side of that same relationship. That it's the turning of disobedient children to the wisdom of the just. It's bringing the children to seek reconciliation, to repent of their disobedience to their parents. John is one who calls to repentance. And if you want to know, have I really repented before God? You should be able to look in your own household about how you treat your siblings, your parents, your children, the one you live with. Am I being transformed daily in that relationship? If not... Does it indicate there's no root to my repentance? That there's no transformation in my relationship with God the Father? John here also targets some other groups. He targets not just the household, but in our text, he targets the community. There ought to be fruit within the community we live in. Caring for those in need. Verse 11. If anyone has two cloaks, two tunics, let him give to the one who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Now, now you can do those things. You can give a coat away to someone in need and food to someone who's hungry and not have repentance in your heart. But, But that's not what John's talking about. What John's talking about is how you evaluate the heart. And if you say with your mouth that you have repented, then he's saying you can know if that statement is true by whether there are outward changes. Are you caring for those in your community more? You're not putting your trust in your care for the community. Your faith is in Christ. John will get us to that. We'll focus on that next week in repentance. But whether you're really putting your faith in Christ where you are, you will also seek to care for the community, to bear fruit there, to bear fruit in the home and the community, and specifically in our callings. Uh, James gets at the same exact thing, probably referencing to John, uh, John's preaching here. Maybe he heard John's preaching in person. 
And so in the book of James, that's what James is getting at. How do I test if my faith that is internal is real? I look for whether fruit is coming out of it. Am I saying to someone who walks in, go, depart, be warm, be filled, and they go out without a coat and no food? Then maybe there's no root of repentance in my heart. James and John both beat this point very thoroughly for us because the fruit of repentance should be visible in us. Also, John speaks of calling here, and we have a sampling of that. Presumably, John, uh, with anyone who came to him, would give very specific application based on their place in life. And we're given two particularly hated callings, the tax collector and the soldier. Both of these are callings that had particular uh, ability towards certain temptation, or certain temptation especially for them. Uh, The way they were built, the tax collector in that day, Rome would give you a commission to be a tax collector. You would get this very small stipend. It was maybe enough to live off of. But the reason people wanted to be tax collectors was they were giving you the task of tax collector and turning a blind eye to how you made your money. And so Rome would say, we want 5%. You get to keep anything over 5% that you can get. And if you got the position of tax collector, you could come to the people and say, Rome wants 8%. And then you pocketed 3%. And everyone knew what you were doing. And Rome encouraged it. So obviously, if you're a tax collector and your boss is encouraging it, you're going to have a strong temptation to greed. And so they come and ask him, what do we do? He doesn't say, did you notice? Well, quit working for the IRS. Everyone knows that's what evil people do. And go and get a job at Walmart. What he says is, in the calling God has given you, keep doing it, but do it without greed. Do it honestly and fairly and be content. That's the fruit of a repentant heart. Soldiers also had a strong temptation because, again, Rome turned a blind eye. As long as Rome didn't hear bad things about your region, you could do whatever you wanted. And so soldiers took advantage of people. Soldiers, sometimes to keep issues from becoming issues, would just pick random innocent people and make them an example. Trump up charges against them. They would take things they didn't have a right to. Rome didn't care. And so instead of saying, well, stop being a bloodthirsty soldier. Don't you know, go go and make peace, not war. Instead, Instead, John says, in your calling, which has this temptation, stand out from the rest by being gentle, fair, and honest, and content. 
the fruit of a repentant heart. And then John also, in terms of this, not only in the household, not only in the community, not only calling, but he also makes it clear that the Messiah is the King of Kings. And even Herod is not above rebuke. We, we find in one of the other Gospels that Herod was really interested in John. He was the popular guy. He, he was, you know, Billy Graham. People were interested in him who were powerful too, right? Queen Elizabeth, various presidents would have Billy Graham go and sit down and chat with them. John apparently had that kind of reputation and and here comes Herod and wants to hear John's message. And when John comes before Herod, he doesn't brown nose. And he doesn't fill Herod's ears with a lot of, you know, it would be a temptation as a preacher maybe to say, If I just flatter him a little, maybe I can influence him a lot. Maybe I could get him to do really good things for the nation of Israel. But instead, John says, you know what you need to do? You need to bear fruit of repentance. And your repentance needs to have the fruit of repenting of adultery, putting that adultery away from you. And living a holy life. Because John's calling is to serve the king of kings, not Herod. And we, we of course, need preachers in our day more like that. Who will tell those in authority what they need to hear. I think not just, I'm not talking politically there even as much. Although maybe a little bit, but especially within what we could think of as celebrity Christians, the, the royalty of Christians, so to speak, the people who think of themselves that way, the authors and maybe musicians or others who have a lot of sway in the evangelical church need preachers who will confront them with their sin and what the fruit of repentance in their lives would mean the Josh Harris and the Mark Driscolls and others like that who seem to be coming out of the woodwork more and more every day don't need to be flattered. They need to be confronted by preachers like John. And with that preaching needs to come a lot of prayer that these might repent, might return to the Lord their God, and might bear the fruit of repentance that the world can see. That's what's needed. But it it requires courageous preaching like that of John. And it requires a preaching of repentance from dead works to fruitful works for God. Well, let's not let John's preaching to tax collectors and soldiers And Herod lead us to think that we aren't all that bad. That would be the easy thing, right? Get him, John. Brood of vipers. I'm sure there were a lot of poorer people who happened to observe what John said to the Pharisees. Vipers. Who who observed what John said to the tax collectors. Get him. Yeah. 
And then he probably turned to them too. And we need to have humility of repentance ourselves, which requires us, if we are to assess the sincerity of the repentance in our own hearts, based on John's approach, if we are to look and say, what is the fruit of repentance in my life? Or where do I need to pursue that fruit for the glory of God? Then we need to start by looking at our own situations and asking, my calling, the place God has placed me, a job or uh, academics, uh, school or, or home or wherever your calling is, At this time, what are the particular sins and temptations associated with this calling? It might be pride. It might be discontentment. It might be any number of things. What are those areas? What are the relationships that are broken? And where, where do I need to repent and look for fruit to ripen in time? The fruit won't appear overnight. When we repent, we still have to pursue sanctification, growth, and holiness. But that's part of repentance. And sometimes we forget that. The Shorter Catechism defines repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace worked in the heart by the Holy Spirit, in which out of a true sense of our sin and a true hatred and an increasing hatred of our sin and an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ. With grief and hatred of our sin, we turn from it to God with full purpose after and striving after new obedience. I fear too often we think of repentance disassociated from turning from the thing. We think of repentance as merely saying, I'm sorry, tell me I'm okay with you. And we forget that part of repentance is also turning from the thing that we need to repent of. That's what John's talking about. Bear the fruit. Turn from the sin. What are our sins that we are prone to? We need to turn from them. And daily ask God to work that fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a God who hears when we cry out to you, the God who in Christ accepts our repentance, graciously working faith in our hearts.